Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Good afternoon and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. Today, I wanted to take you back to the Fermi Paradox, which asks the question, if life is so common in the universe, how come we have yet to find any evidence of it? Why haven't we been visited by an extraterrestrial intelligence? In short, where are all the aliens? As we explored in our second episode, this paradox is named after physicist Enrico Fermi, who famously asked it among his colleagues at the Los Alamos Laboratory, in 1950 during a lunchtime conversation. And what I want to talk to you about over the next few weeks and possibly months is some of the proposed resolutions to this paradox. And today we're going to be focusing on what's known as the transcension hypothesis, which just happens to be one of my all-time favorite resolutions. To pick up where we left off, we're talking about the Kardashev scale the last time and how Nikolai Kardashev created this three-class system for characterizing how developed, how advanced an extraterrestrial civilization could be. And class one being those who had were planetary civilizations, class two were stellar civilizations, and class three were, were galactic civilizations. And the key there was about how much energy they could muster, how much they could harness, because... In the paper where he proposed it, Nikolai Kardashev was talking about the types of frequencies, the types of, of uh, transmissions, right? The, the power behind a civilization's communications. Obviously, the, the more developed they were, uh, so the logic went, the more developed they were, the more energy they could harness over larger scales and then use that to do everything up to and including transmitting information. So this had a massive effect, uh, significance of that there. It was felt by astronomers, astrophysicists, and SETI researchers the world over. They thought, oh my, this is so interesting. We could start looking for possibilities right now. And, well, we have been ever since. But another major thing that came of this was that the Kardashev scale, it invited some speculation and revision because there was no shortage of people who thought... You could look at this in any number of other ways. One rather famous variation was from Carl Sagan himself. He said, instead of how much energy, why not talk about information mastery? Because Kardashev himself was saying, yeah, it's about transmission of information. So Sagan was saying, well, instead of focusing on the signal energy, how about the amount of information that is being generated and stored every single day? So yeah, the more advanced the species, the more information they'd have at their fingertips. And one look at the digital age and the digital revolution here on Earth can show exactly how bang on Carl Sagan was about that. Writing in his time, as he did, this was around the 70s, he was witnessing the early digital revolution. Well, today, that revolution is 
is ongoing and it's it's progressing in a way that is absolutely exponential. And then Robert Zubrin, the founder and CEO of the Mars Society, big advocate for exploring Mars and a very famous science communicator, uh, he talked about uh, planetary mastery, right? If you are type 1 civilization in this game, you say, yeah, they have mastery over their planet, their home planet. So they're just getting started. If they have mastery over more, like all within their solar system, then, yeah, you could describe that as a type 2. And then, of course, there's a lot of uh, room for expansion there. You could say type 3 is an entire galaxy of, of planetary mastery. Big leap. There's a lot of subtle levels between the two of those there, but you get the point. It's more about, yeah, how many planets and star systems, even, they, they've managed to successfully get their foot in and, and develop the capacity to stay. So there were a lot of, of these here, but, and this is where we get into transcension hypothesis here, it does serve as a pretty good intro to it there, because it, it was by John D. Barrow, and he wrote a book in 1998 called Impossibility, the limits of science and the science of limits. And he used human history as a template and said that instead of thinking in terms of how civilizations will just keep getting bigger and bigger, shouldn't we be looking at how they might actually be mastering the natural environment over increasingly smaller scales? And again, he used human history to demonstrate that. It's like ancient cultures. Hunter gathers right on up to the Mesopotamians and Egyptians, Sumerians, etc. They had mastery over objects that were comparable to humans in size. Like a, this big slab of stone, you can assemble them together, you can make a very large building, yes. But you're still working on a, on a, you're working on a rather macro scale there. And it's not about how big it is, but rather how intricate and articulate you get. And... and over time, ancient civilizations, they worked on the, on the human scale, but then we started getting into chemistry and physics, and we began to reach down to the molecular scale. And the, the moment we began to create synthetic chemicals, we, we were getting into what he called, uh, his entire scale worked in minuses. So yeah, a type 1 minus would be capable of manipulating objects similar in size to themselves. So the moment we began to be able to, to chemically engineer things, create artificial and synthetic chemicals, then we, we transcended in a way. And then from that down to the atomic level, then the subatomic, and just further and further down. And so Barrow organized this very cleverly in a scale that instead of type 1, type 2, type 3, etc., he, he organized it downwards, where you have type 1 minus, type 2 minus, 3 minus, and 4 minus. And currently, several of these describe technologies that we are at levels that we're at. We would definitely be at type 4 minus right now, which, uh, as he described it, capable of manipulating individual atoms, creating nanotechnologies, and complex forms of artificial life. Um, so rather than saying we're there, it's more like we're, we're, we're pushing that, we're cresting that one. And uh, yeah, beyond that, the type 5 minus is capable of manipulating atomic nuclei and engineering nucleons that compose them. And that, that doesn't quite apply to us. Uh, we can smash atoms in a particle accelerator, sure. We can smash protons of the atomic nuclei of atoms, but we can't engineer 
nucleons quite yet to create new elements or to create super materials and so forth. But yeah, we're getting closer. Type 6 minus, and this is where we're really getting deep, refers to a civilization that would be capable of manipulating the elementary particles of matter. Quarks and leptons, so subatomic engineering. And type omega minus, uh, the ultimate state, would be capable of manipulating the basic structure of space and time. Because once you get beneath the subatomic, whatever is left is the very fabric of space-time itself. And it's down there that you will be way past the mysteries of dark matter and dark energy. By that time, you'll have everything figured out and you will be able to manipulate space and time. And that may be the only way any intelligent life form ever figures out how to travel instantaneously from one point of space to another, or to basically interrupt the flow of time. It's absolutely staggering to imagine. In any case, the theory here, as Barrow proposed it there, it drew on a, on a bunch of different antecedents or inspirational theories. You have singularity theory in there, the idea that John von Neumann and Ray Kurzweil and other major futurists, that progress, technological progress, it's an exponential thing. So if you think of it in terms of exponential growth, sooner or later you're going to hit this point of inflection or singularity where the progress becomes immeasurable. If it's a, a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis, eventually that line's just going to start going straight up. And you have to throw away the graph because it's useless now. And Ray Kurzweil summarized that up pretty well he, with what he talks about, the law of accelerating returns. For every new revolutionary breakthrough that happens, the amount of time before the next one comes, just the amount of time you need to put in and work to put in to develop it, becomes shorter. And at every juncture, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And yeah, it's not just that the technology we have is, uh, is allowing us to move faster, but the rate at which the technology is improving is also moving faster. There's acceleration rather than linear progression. So you also had Eric Drexler. He was a major proponent of nanotechnology, and he wrote a book called The Engine of Creation. What he spoke about there was, yeah, machines that are molecular in size, molecular machines, molecular assemblers, they could take ordinary matter and manufacture it into just about anything else. And when you can do that, the world's your oyster, but you could turn that oyster into diamonds. Also, you have Feynman, and he his uh, example predates Drexler there for a bit. He... He gave a lecture called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, and that was a very seminal lecture that he did that talked about nanotechnology again, and how self-assembling robots that would be able to manufacture copies of themselves, but always on a smaller scale, they just keep building downward and downward and downward until they occupied you know, the, the atomic level of space, and seeing as how atoms, the, on the atomic scale, it's mostly space down there, you'd never run out of room. And if you can manipulate things down there, well, then reality itself is basically your... It's taken its orders from you. So all of these ideas together, the idea of exponential growth and, and uh, progress, the idea of smaller and smaller scales, the idea of being able to manipulate things on ever smaller scales, and, and that giving rise to being able to do you know whatever you wanted... Transcension hypothesis is where that and the Fermi paradox, they come together and they have this beautiful child that basically says, well, if we're thinking about this now, 
then there are aliens out there that have already thought about it, already done it, and maybe that's why we're not seeing them anymore, because they're no longer flesh-and-blood creatures. They've been able to transcend to a state of existence so advanced that, well, to our sufficiently primitive minds, they would appear, if they chose to appear at all, they would appear as gods. And that the implications of that are frightening and definitely mind-blowing. Uh, also, uh, John von Neumann, who I think I already mentioned, because he, too, he spoke about singularity theory and computing, he also had an idea for um, the universal assemblers. So probes that would go out into space and constantly be making copies of themselves from ordinary matter. And this would assist in their exploration. They'd be able to get everywhere. That, uh, that comes up mainly in a whole other wonderful, uh, one of my other favorite Fermi Paradox series. But, um, yeah, in this context... It, too, provides a possible resolution in, in the idea that, well, let's say you're a sufficiently advanced species, you're in your own solar system, you've got plenty of energy, and this this is like the Matryoshka brain I mentioned last time. It's providing you with all the energy you need so that you and your alien friends, you're able to upload your minds into computers no larger than a dust particle, and you've got like infinite energy there for the next few billion years until your star dies, you've got this energy and uh, you're able to communicate with each other and live out your existence in this in like simulated realities and whatnot. You can take physical form if you choose, right? You've got basically pockets of matter that you can, say, upload your consciousness into and it can you can walk around inside of it like as if it were a, a human body or an an, some kind of animal body or the alien equivalent. If you're doing that at home, you, I would imagine you'd still want to explore. Why go out there yourself? You can send out all these self-replicating probes. And to take that just another mind-bending step further, let's say these probes are uploaded with your consciousness and the consciousness of many, many other of your kind. They're going out there, they're replicating themselves, so you've got just so many versions of yourself seeing the universe and recording their observations and living out a simulated existence that is lets them see the real world though and then someday they they send the the information back or maybe they're sending it back all the time and it takes a while to get to you but then you and your other alien friends or your minds you're able to see what your copies have seen and you're able to create a much more detailed picture of the universe around you without it ever having to go there now, you might think that sounds lazy and boring and so forth, but yeah, that's probably the principal criticism against any kind of, of species becoming singularitarians and transcending. But it would allow for so much more. And another name who I must bring up in this context, and his name is John M. Smart, and he's the CEO of the Foresight University and the founder of the Acceleration Studies Foundation. And he he followed up on a lot of this thought there, including the Barrow scale, in 2002, and he has updated his studies since because of just ongoing discovery, new innovations, new developments. So his 2002 paper was titled, Answering the Fermi Paradox, Exploring the Mechanisms of Universal Transcension. And he argued exactly what a lot of the same threads of thought just said there. A lot of these come from him. It's that aliens are not noticeable to us because they've transcended. 
They've entered into an advanced state of existence, and rather than building bigger, glitzier megastructures to accommodate their existence out there, instead of engaging in mega-building, yeah, they've instead focused on optimization. they built downward, or they've optimized the space they've had rather than enlarging it and expanding it. So in 2011, he followed that first paper up with what he is now calling the Transcension Hypothesis, Sufficiently advanced civilizations invariably leave our universe and implications for Meti and Seti. I do believe, actually, it was the first time the Transcension Hypothesis appeared in print. And I had the honor of speaking to Smart. It was a little, I think about a year and a half ago. It was, uh, I believe, just shy of COVID. We had a good chance to discuss this, and it was absolutely mind-blowing, really, to, to get all into this there. And because some of... A lot of these ideas, didn't really realize it at the time, are so unbelievably, they go back very far. And you will find plenty of examples in the realm of science fiction, ideas that touch on that, but at the same time, it goes far beyond that. We're talking astrophysics, we're talking cosmology, we're talking about biology, we're talking about technological trends, we're, we're talking about human history and just the long, long, long march of engineering and innovation and, and where it's taking us. And and this, again, this demonstrates what's so cool about the Fermi Paradox sometimes, because it's like anything that we are doing, anything that we have been doing since the beginning of recorded history and, and even the beginning of human existence, right? These are habits, they're activities, they're functions of intelligence. So we have to wonder... If we're not alone in the universe, if it is ubiquitous, intelligence is ubiquitous, if life itself is out there in, in many, many forms, and, and intelligence is out there in many, many forms, we have to assume other people have been doing something like this, too. And they're asking similar questions. If they're older and more advanced than us, well, then they've already done it, and they asked the questions a long time ago, and they're living with the consequences. So that's something, you know, whatever we can look forward to, we have to entertain the possibility that somebody else already did it. As I said, it's a time-honored idea, and it goes back very far, in fact. Probably the earliest recorded example of it was one of the undisputed fathers of astronautic theory and aerospace and rocketry, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. And he, he was born in the late 19th century. He did most of his most productive thinking there in the, in the early mid-20th century. He would go on to use basically the, the fountainhead from which the Russian and Soviet rocketry sprang. And he's one of four individuals in the world who is acknowledged as being responsible for the space age. And anyway, as a committed cosmologist, he often diverged from you know pure science to get into philosophy in a big way. And so... He wrote in an essay published in 1932, it was titled, Is There a God? And he addressed that from a cosmological perspective, where he said that, well, I believe there's something like perfect intelligence, and it's something that lies in humanity's future, and who knows, quite possibly it's already been achieved by other life forms in the universe. And to quote from the essay, Millions of milliards of planets have existed for a long time, and therefore their animals have reached a maturity which we will reach in millions of years of our future life on Earth. This maturity is manifest by perfect intelligence. 
by deep understanding of nature and by technical power which makes other heavenly bodies accessible to the inhabitants of the cosmos. So, in 1932, this was just shy of the space age there by about uh, 25 years. But yes, Tsiolkovsky was predicting that humanity's future would lay in space. And he is also the one who was credited with saying that Earth is the cradle of mankind, but one cannot remain in the cradle forever. Could have been nest, but I think it was cradle. And a year later, in 1933, he wrote, The planets are occupied by living beings. And he... He addressed the Fermi's question 20 years before Fermi had actually asked it. Now, he posed questions to himself in this essay in the form of, of a dialogue. And in this particular part of the dialogue, he asked himself if there are beings of perfect intelligence out there in the universe or just more advanced than us and capable of visiting us, why haven't they done it already? So he said to that, perhaps they will visit us, but time has not come yet for this. Aboriginal Australians and Native Americans of past centuries saw Europeans visit them, but many millennium passed before they arrived. Similarly, we'll see such a visit in some time. The powerful inhabitants of other planets, perhaps, have been visiting one another for a long time. Referring to what he had to say about the Aboriginal Australians and Native Americans, um, not sure what he meant by many millenniums, but yeah. I think he's referring to how, well, in North America, it was visited by the Vikings long before Columbus and any of the other conquistador expeditions began to go. And and this is, in fact, true. Before official contact had been made between many parts of the world, the evidence exists that, well, vessels, trading ships, or just caravans, what have you, they passed that way at a previous time. But nobody, nobody stopped and said hello and started exchanging information. He also ventured that maybe it's already happened, we just didn't know, which is a, another possibility you really have to take seriously. He said, Our facilities are too weak to perceive these signs. Our celestial neighbors understand that at a certain level of knowledge, people themselves will definitely prove inhabitants of other planets. So, addressing the possibility that much more advanced civilizations already tried to make their existence known to us, right? Like, they passed by and they tried to say hello, but somehow we weren't able to answer. He said that our facilities are too weak to perceive these signs. Our celestial neighbors understand that at a certain level of knowledge, people themselves will definitely prove inhabitants of other planets. In addition, there is no good of informing about inhabitants of planets, lower animals from the Earth, along with the majority of humankind, because of the low degree of their development. What if this knowledge does harm? Time must pass until the average levels of humankind's development is sufficient for non-Earthly dwellers to visit us. So, he implied that, on the one hand, it could be they did try to make contact, but we're, we are just not advanced enough to recognize the signs for what they are, and on the other, kind of implies a bit of a prime directive that advanced intelligence may make it a habit of avoiding primitive beings. Or quite possibly, maybe you don't even have to make a habit out of avoiding them because any attempt to contact them using your, your advanced methods will, will go unnoticed. I do like the idea of a prime directive because, you know, a spaceship can land and you can pop out and look at people around you and clearly they're going to recognize you as being not of this world. And the dangers of that are considerable, so I, it stands to reason a wise, highly developed, highly advanced species would say, just don't do it. Let them find their way to us. 
let them realize that there's a world outside their boundaries and, and that they are free to enjoy it when they're ready. So yeah, all those all those arguments of Tsiolkovsky, it predicted what Kardashev said, it predicted what Carl Sagan would say. It is a question that is really, really old. So in terms of what Smart argued, and this, this being the implications for Metti and Seti, his second essay, Metti referring to messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, and Seti referring to searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. So first to give you a, a quick pricey of what he had to say about the transcension hypothesis, because it's really quite good. He said, the transcension hypothesis proposes that a universal process of evolutionary development, or evo-devo, guides all sufficiently advanced civilizations into what may be called inner space, a computationally optimal domain of increasingly dense, productive, miniaturized, and efficient scales of space, time, energy, and matter. And... In terms of where this would drive us, where these advanced civilizations would be compelled to go to, and how this would you know, mask their presence uh, from us and other lesser species, he said that they would find their ways to black holes, because black holes are, in so many ways, from the computational physics, or the physics of computation standpoint, and just in terms of energy, they're ideal. Black holes, if you if you remain outside of the event horizon, which is basically their outer boundary, you remain beyond that, and you'd be crazy not to, you would have access to massive amounts of, of light and radiation that is constantly swirling around the edges of it. And that is, in, in fact, how we're able to image black holes today, is you, that you, you capture the bright area that is around their event horizon. And that's their, their crazy gravity has pulled in all kinds of matter from the surrounding universe. It's now been broken down. A lot of it is just light that was captured by the curvature of space-time. And uh, the rest of it has basically been spun up to velocities so great, they're moving at a relatively high percentage of the speed of light. So if you're camped out just beyond that in some kind of Dyson sphere that can enclose the central black hole, you can pick up all that energy, and you can soak up all the radiation, especially those powerful jets the larger supermassive black holes are known to, to spew out. And if you can harness that, you've got energy forever. And that, too, we could be able to power a massive computerized brain that surrounds that there. It's like you, as the species, lives inside the, the computer itself, and it's being powered by the black hole. And that idea had been proposed already by Roger Penrose of Oxford, and recent research that's looked at black holes confirms that those immensely powerful vortexes of light and energy around them could just provide inexhaustible energy. Other things that Smart figured was, well, if you can camp out around a black hole, you can also peer into them from a safe distance. But it may be able to give you the ability to to peer into other universes. And part of that is an astronomy tool, because black holes are so such unbelievably powerful gravitational objects, they act as, as gravitational lenses, right? They can amplify light coming from very distant objects, they can bend the path of light so that you can see things you don't have a line of sight on. And if you did have the ability to manipulate space and time, 
if you were that advanced, you might even be able to pierce the veil of a black hole, go inside, and not be completely and utterly destroyed by it. And if you could do that, if you could see what actually transpires beneath the veil of an event horizon, you could see through space and time and possibly travel through wormholes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of exotic theories as to what goes on inside a black hole, and one of which is that they're the seeds for the creations of new universes. So that is something a uh, T-omega civilization might actually want to do and might be getting up to. Peek inside and see a new universe shaping, right? How, what's it going to look like? Is it any better than the last one? Hmm, who knows? To, to finish on that there, there are other versions of this, uh, some of which I really want to explore in fiction, and in fact I intend to. It's like if a super advanced species was in fact camped out around a black hole, well, they'd, they would most likely be able to move stars and put them in orbit of a black hole. So now you have a black hole system in which on one single orbital plane, at a sufficient distance from the black hole, you can position stars and their their systems of planets, and they're just dancing around this uh, this black hole there, and, and there's enough room in all those systems there for trillions of life forms. And, yeah, they could be you, or maybe you're keeping others around you as protégés, protectorates, pets, who knows. And yet more Fermi theories coming out there, but, yeah, that idea alone I thought was always very, very interesting. We are... A super advanced species and we're hanging out around a black hole and we're watching the universe go we're go ahead and we're watching the universe sort of fly by and because otherwise it could get lonely well one thing that smart did say is that he wanted to when he wrote this he wanted to deter people from thinking that what he was arguing was that we're destined for or that any intelligent life is destined for godlike status and whatever and complexity and Tsiolkovsky was alluding to that. So it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And, well, heard that one a long time ago, and it, it's, it's one of those uh, sayings that's really stuck around because, of course, it's, uh, it is quite brilliant, quite insightful, but it got me thinking as well. And it was around the same time that I began studying different Fermi hypotheses and the idea of transcension was... was there, and it was one of them, and I thought, well, taking that logic a step further, any sufficiently advanced civilization would be indistinguishable from gods, at least from our perspective there, and that, that is what uh, Clark was referring to. Um, anything that is advanced enough, if you show it to someone who has no understanding of it, right? If you showed a hunter-gatherer a magnet, or a compass, or a gun, or just a, a handheld telescope, Right? They would definitely think that, yeah, there was something magical, something uh, occultic, occultist going on there. I mean, hell, if you went to medieval Europe and showed them a, a basic invention today, they'd, they'd call you a witch and burn you. They did do that with inventions uh, of their day. So, so and yes, in fact, if a civilization was advanced enough and they had access to technology that could allow them to do such tremendous things as move stars, camp out around galaxies camp out around black holes, master time and space itself, then yes, one would absolutely think that they were godlike. And 
In fact, they themselves may certainly come to that conclusion as well, and that too is something I, I want to write about. Now, to paraphrase what Frank Herbert said, uh, there exists no natural boundary between men and gods. One blends indistinguishably into the other. It's like, yes, humans and gods, I would say. Let's update that. So, having said all that, I want to finish with a quote by Arthur C. Clarke, and it's, uh, it's known as Clarke's Third Law. And he said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And he's absolutely right. Other, others have said, um, they've added that to the, to the primitive mind or to the uneducated mind or whatever. They've made that caveat, right? It's like, yes, if, if the, the technology is so far advanced beyond you and you don't recognize it for what it is, then if it were suddenly demonstrated to you, you would feel like you were in the presence of something magical. And I always loved this quote. Um, but it got me thinking, you know, in the context of transcension and super advanced life, it's like if sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, then any sufficiently advanced civilization would be indistinguishable from gods. And this is, of course, you know, semantics and definitions and all about perception, but it's absolutely true. And Carl Sagan himself even said that scientists should take seriously the idea that aliens have visited us in the past and that we remember. It's just that given our stated development at the time, we may have converted all that into some form of mythology and even gave examples of contact scenarios where uh, long after the fact it was told in, in, in very... Uh, sort of mythological, very uh, very spiritually steeped ways, but it did refer to real events. So what if? And just to be clear, uh, I do not, nor will I ever, condone or endorse the ideas put forth by the ancient aliens, ancient astronauts uh, theory crowd. Um, that is uh, blatant pseudoscience and pseudo-archaeology at its worst, so yes, do not believe them, ever. It's absolute loads of crap. But, yeah, having said that, you have to admit it is within the realm of possibility that human beings have met extraterrestrial intelligence before, and the account of that has been kept somewhere in the form of an oral tradition, or perhaps what was perceived to have been a god, or gods. You can't rule out that possibility. Of course, that's what makes the ancient astronauts theory suck. It, you can't be it can't be proven either way. Ergo, nobody can make claims to of that having happened, or can they even begin to claim that they've proven it? So, in point of fact, uh, while the ancient aliens, ancient astronaut theory is complete bunk and pseudoscience and and clearly wishful thinking, um, I will say that yeah. Um, much like Carl Sagan said, you can't rule out the possibility that contact has already happened and that maybe we we kept a record of it in the form of a myth or yeah, a cultural narrative, an oral tale of some kind. Or possibly even a written one. It's just that yeah, those who those who experienced the, the, the contact event, they were they didn't know they didn't realize what was happening there, so they naturally saw it in terms of something supernatural. Well, that was deep. 
So next time I would like to tackle what uh, the uh, the runner-up for that little poll, which was the Planetarium Hypothesis, because it too is one of my favorites. And uh, yes, the Berserker Hypothesis has got to get in there somewhere, because that one's just so fun. Scary, but fun. Until next time, I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.